Okay, church family, Leviticus chapter 4 this morning. Leviticus chapter 4. We are going to read the whole chapter. And if you've read the whole chapter this week, you might feel that it's quite the page turner, or you might not. But regardless, it is in fact the infallible, inerrant word of God. And it has power to change lives. So we will read it as uh, believing it, it does. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. And then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. As it was taken from the bull to the sacrifice of the peace offering and the the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and legs, its entrails and offal, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. It shall be burned. Verse 13. Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, that the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting, Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It's a sin offering for the assembly. When a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, his God, and anything that should be done, and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they killed the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And he shall burn all its fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. Verse 27. Are you still with me? All right. At least ten of you are. 
If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of his blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat, as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sins that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His Word this morning. Gracious Lord, we offer You all honor, praise, and glory. Because it all belongs to You anyway. Lord, we've been reminded this morning that, that You alone are worthy of our worship. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of Your Son by His life, death, and resurrection. That we were buried and and raised with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places. That we have a salvation that is sure. That His blood has indeed cleansed us. That because of that we can draw near to Your throne of grace with confidence. Not in ourselves or anything we have done, but in the salvation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that You would open the eyes of our hearts. That we might hear from Your Word that we might see you as holy and pure, that we might taste afresh your mercy and grace, that we might be called, Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel which we proclaim. Father, we admit we are dependent. We admit if we are to gain anything this morning, it will be solely by the work of your grace, your spirit within us. Visit us with that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So that was Leviticus 4. After reading that, I'm sure I could say just about anything and it would sound entertaining. Right? Because we know that's a whole lot of law. Let's be honest, it can be hard to listen to, can it? It's okay, you can admit that. I'm not going to roast you for it yet. I mean, it's hard to read that much about one specific type of sacrifice. I imagine it's even more difficult to sit and listen to it. And as you, as you read through it, I would imagine it's probably at this point where it all starts to blend together, right? We have another sacrifice, another offering, another laying on hands on the head... More blood spilled, more weird things done with that blood, with the fat, all of it burned up with smoke. Just becoming one big mess of butchering, blood, so on and so forth. But I want to assure you, as I'm sure that you know, 
that each one of these offerings, each one of these sacrifices have a specific purpose and taught Israel something specific. They also teach us something specific about God, about sin, about ourselves and our walk with Christ. And, and really, as I read through this purification offering, I could not help but to think of our church building in 2020. When remodeling the nursery, members of our building and grounds team found quite a bit of mold in the nursery, in the building alone. Now, I'm obviously not an expert on mold or claim to be, so take this with a grain of salt, but I do know that mold is nasty stuff. Black mold is dangerous, contaminated. You aren't supposed to breathe it in. If you do breathe it in, it supposedly has very bad health effects on people, especially those prone to respiratory problems. A home can even be condemned because of black mold in it. And before you go running to the nursery, just remind you we have eradicated all of that and it's perfectly clean now. But the mold we found in our church, there was a little on the ceiling, on the wall. And as we peeled more of the wall away, we found more mold. So we had an immediate inspection, and the inspector found some more places. We had to, you remember, you were here, had to shut down those areas of our church until they were eradicated, and praise be to God, they were, and it had not gone airborne. Here's why I thought of, of mold this week. It's because God is holy, He's perfect, and He's righteous. Therefore, He cannot, will not live in the presence of sin. In the same way... Sin contaminates and pollutes everything that it touches. So we don't usually think of sin as a physical substance, and it's not. Yet, that is how it's often described in the Scripture. It is mold. It makes things dirty. It contaminates things. It pollutes areas. It clings to something, defiling it so it is no longer fit for the Lord. And so where sin pollutes and contaminates, God's special presence or divine favor will be removed. The the big idea of today's text in Leviticus 4 is this. It is what sin makes dirty, blood has to make clean. That's what Leviticus 4 is all about. Everything I just read, that's the big idea. What sin makes dirty, blood has to make clean. Leviticus 4 really boils down to this idea. So chapter 4 introduces a new section as we kind of looked at it. Uh, The last section that we covered in 1 through 3, it really has to to do with voluntary offerings. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, it covered those offerings that could be offered at any time for any reason. And so we read, if you offer a burnt offering, this is how you offer it. If you offer a grain offering, this is how you offer it. If you offer a peace offering, this is how you offer it. And now we read, if you sin, this is no longer voluntarily, voluntary, it's obligatory. There's an obligation here. If you sin, you must offer a sin offering. It's a mandatory offering for anyone who realizes that they've sinned against the Lord, dishonored the name of the Lord, and defiled his holy dwelling place. And this is important, because that's exactly what happens when we sin. More specifically, that's what would happen in ancient Israel. It's a picture of, if I may, the scene in the sandlot. Everybody's seen the sandlot, right? I hope you've seen the sandlot. Don't ruin my childhood. If you remember, that's the the baseball movie when the boys create the suction device to retrieve the famous Babe Ruth ball from the beast. 
And the beast, of course, he bites the pipe and the, the vacuum, the, the bags explode into the treehouse. And, and Timmy, or Tommy, is it? Tim, Timmy's the older one, I think. Which one says Colossus of Clout first? I think it's Timmy. Timmy just walks out and he's just covered in dust. And then he shakes his hair, right? And it does absolutely nothing. He's still covered with the dust of the vacuum. That's really a picture of exactly what's happening in Israel. And and what we get here in chapter 4 is how we get rid of the filthiness of sin. It's the Israelites running in place, covered with dust, following the Lord, and then falling to the sin. And when they fall, the dust just explodes. And it settles on everything, including the holy dwelling place of the Lord. It's unholy dust that has made the place where the Lord dwells dirty. It's contaminated the very place where the special presence of the Lord dwells. So something has to be done. Well, let's break this up now and look at a couple different areas. We're going to look at the structure of the purification offering first. As we have followed in the last three offerings, we're going to do the same here. What is the structure of the purification offering? Um, How is it different than the other ones? The structure we see in chapter 4 is laid out. And the reason, by the way, chapter 4 is so repetitious and long is because it starts with the instructions for the high priest. Then it starts for the instructions of the whole assembly. Then instructions for the leader. And then instructions for the common people. And it goes through bit by bit each one and how to present these offerings. And so the Lord begins in chapter 4 with the most grave of sins. Not the specific sins, but the person whose sins has the most wide-ranging and most drastic consequence for all of them, the high priest. Why is that? Well, because the high priest, or the anointed priest, as he's called in the text, is the one who is anointed for the special task or ministry before the Lord. We know what this is, right? He is the one who could enter into the Holy of Holies, and even him, only how many times a year? Once. But after going through a very extensive and specific purification process, he would then enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement in order to atone for the people of Israel. He therefore, not only spiritually, but literally, geographically, was closest to the Lord. His sin was the sin that contaminated the whole tent of meeting the most. Its consequences would be the gravest. And so his actions were represented and his sins brought the consequences of sin in all of Israel. We read that in verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, his guilt was their guilt and everyone would suffer. Now, that's hard for us to recognize a little bit, but I feel like it's... It's easier these days. We live in a fairly individualistic culture. And we may struggle with with that just a little bit. Yet all of us realize that, that leaders and the decisions leaders make have consequences on those they lead, right? Likewise, the sin of the high priest would bring about the consequences of sin on the whole congregation of Israel. And so the Lord in His mercy gives the purification offering in order to deal with His, the high priest's sin, assuring that He and all of Israel would receive the benefits from the animal sacrifice. So the high priest would take a bull, he would would do the hand-leaning right, associating himself with the animal, transferring his sin and guilt to the animal, and then the bull would be slaughtered, blood would be collected, and here we start to differ just a little bit from all the other offerings. Here... He takes the blood 
into the tent of meeting. He dips his finger into the blood and sprinkles it on the veil of the sanctuary seven times before the Lord. The sprinkling of blood, oil, and water, it often denoted a cleansing or completeness or wholeness. And and the fact that it's done before the Lord reminds Israel that this sin of the people is against the Lord and the Lord alone. The sanctuary in our text, it refers to the Holy of Holies. You have the tent of meeting itself is separated by a veil on the inside from the holy place and the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant set. It was the throne room of God. And the rite was meant to cleanse the Holy of Holies of the filth, dishonor, and sin the high priest had brought on the room of the great high king, the throne room of the great high king. Then the priest would take some of the blood and smear it on the horns of the altar of the fragrant of incense that sat right before the veil. That was meant to purify the holy place. So we see the holy holies purified in the holy place. And so in essence, the high priest is going into the tent of meeting, and really he's just cleaning up the mess he made. He sinned against the Lord, intentionally or unintentionally, and the mess had to be cleansed. And the rest of the blood would be poured out on the base of the altar of burnt offering. Next, this is familiar, he would take the fat from the bull, burn it on the altar. Then he'd take the rest of the animal outside of the camp to a pure place and burn the entire animal. It's worth noting that the purpose of this is is that no one benefits from this sacrifice. Uh, In the burnt offering, remember the entire animal is burnt, but at least its hide is kept. Here, nothing remains. When it is the sin of the high priest or the whole congregation... It's not unlike somebody who's robbed a bank, turning themselves in, and then expecting a reward for the capture of the criminal. That's what we see here. There should be no benefit in the reparation of sin. Therefore, no one was to eat the sin of the offering when it was the sin of the high priest or the congregation of Israel. And then we go on to the whole congregation. I don't have to take you back through each one because it's the exact same for the high priest. Only difference are the elders are the ones who lay their hands on the animal. And then we move to leaders. Only difference here is the blood is sprinkled on the outside of the tent. Why? Because their job was not to serve before the Holy of Holies. They are geographically removed. Therefore, their dust did not travel as far. And then the final instructions or general instructions are about the common people. Again, very similar to the leaders. The only difference is the animal is a female goat or lamb versus a male. So, okay, that's the structure of the offering. What's the purpose? What does that mean? Why do I need to know this? Why is it written here? What's the purpose of the purification offering? Well, it's not just purification, which would be the easy one, all right? It's purification and atonement. The text actually says in verse 20, So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. It's worth noting that these, these two aspects, atonement and purification, by, by some commentators are actually held in contradiction to one another. They argue, which is it? Is the sacrifice meant to atone for the sin as a ransom taking the place of a sinner, or is it meant to purify the tent of meeting? Well, those two are actually complementary. In fact, it's explicit in stating the atonement is accomplished. But as we've seen with the other sacrifices, remember what the hand-leaning rite was meant to teach. 
It was meant to teach that there was a ransom taking place. The animal was taking the place of the person or group that had sinned, that it was being accepted by the Lord. But, but we're also reminded very clearly that the, the wages of sin are death. And the debt that is paid must be paid by a substitute. So the animal's life, the the blood was poured out to pay for the sin of the worshiper. This is a ransom payment, no doubt about it. We already know atonement is an aspect of each one of those offerings, and it must be. There is no opportunity to offer oneself in wholehearted devotion with a burnt offering until atonement has been made. There's no ability to express the whole life submission we talked about through a peace offering until atonement has been made. Atonement was a necessary aspect of each of those offerings. So we're not surprised to read that the purification offering also ransoms the sinner. So that the offering can accomplish its main function, purification. It was given to Israel to clean the pollution of sin off of the tent of meeting. Listen, we know this. The Lord would not and could not dwell in the midst of sin. That's an issue we've seen from the very beginning. And looking at Leviticus, remember in the introduction, it was one of our burning questions in the heart and mind of the Israelites. How are we going to dwell in the midst of a holy God who cannot dwell in the midst of sin and yet we sin constantly? The Lord's answer in his mercy was the purification offering. He says, you will keep my holy dwelling, the palace tent, cleansed through these purification sacrifices. So that's the purpose of the purification offering. Let's go ahead and move to the lessons. What were the lessons that Israel was to learn through this purification offering? The lessons of the purification offering. I've got four of them, I think. Is that right? Probably. Sure. Let's go with four. Let me begin. I want to say by by saying that these are the lessons that Israel learned, or should have at least, that that we also have much to learn from. But I'm speaking specifically, and I want to make that clear, I'm speaking specifically of Israel here. First, I think this. Israel would have learned the detestable nature of sin. Israel, through the purification offering, would have learned the detestable nature of sin. That sin is and was loathsome. Or as Derek Tidball writes, he says, sin is a loathsome offense to God, which seriously disrupts our relationship with him and with the world he has made. Uh, listen, I, I assume it's challenging, again, to listen to someone explain the details of Leviticus 4 and the purification offering, but this is an invaluable and critical lesson we are to learn from this offering. Church family, sin is detestable. And remember, Israel knew that. Israel was well aware that their sin threatened their lives. Israel understood that if God leaves, we have nothing. I always pull back to the story because it's so, I just, I can't stop wrapping my mind around Exodus 33 these days. You just remember the words of Moses, right? He, the Lord tells them to go in the promised land, but he's not going to, he's not to come with them. And then Moses responds in verse 15. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us. Us up from here. Lord, if, if you ain't going to the promised land with us, don't let us go. Because it is better to be with you in the wilderness than it is to be without you in the promised land. 
They'd rather stay at Mount Sinai than go to the promised land. And because sin was detestable, loathsome, it defiled them and made them dirty. It made them unfit to go before the Lord. Their sin covered them with unholy dust. It clothed them with black mold. It spoiled their relationship like rotting food that attracts flies, but that repels the human senses. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, fair warning to all our students in here. I, I, I thought about this this week as well. Um, Here's what you you need to know if you're a student and you're in student ministry and you come on Wednesday night. Um, if, if If someone ever leaves a toilet running in our youth room, that is, they don't pull the handle up all the way after they flush, then water just runs all through the night. And, and then we open the door on Thursday morning to this nice rotten egg sulfur smell in the office. Really just brings your worship out in so many ways welcoming scent, um, it just permeates quickly. It does. You just open the door and you just run into that, you know, you, you feel it, you taste it almost as much as you can smell it. It's just, it's disgusting. It offends all five senses. It, it takes a, a whole day of airing the place out and spraying everything you could. And then actually, even when you spray, it's just the mixture of rotted something and the deodorizers we use. And so it doesn't do anything but, but make it more pungent and, and nasty and And again, that's actually a a very good picture of our sin. It repels the Lord. It is repugnant to Him. If the offerings of worship were a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then sin is just the opposite. Sin is a nauseating aroma to the Lord. So Israel would have learned that sin is detestable. Second, lesson number one, sin is detestable. Lesson number two is Israel would have learned that there's a necessity for death to cleanse away that sin. There's a necessity for death to cleanse away that sin. The Israelites learned very well through all their gruesome rituals that the wages of sin are death. Intentional or unintentional sin. There was no, by the way, there was no, listen Lord, I I really didn't mean to. I'm sorry, I, I didn't know. Right? In the same way that you can try to talk your way out of a ticket when you're going the wrong way down a one-way street because you didn't see the sign, that cop is still well within his rights to write you a ticket. Not seeing the sign doesn't excuse you. You still have broken the law and received the consequences for breaking of that law. In the same way, the intentionality of the sin does not determine whether someone is culpable or responsible for transgressing God's law. Therefore, life must be poured out. There is no getting rid of sin without blood, without death. Purification of sin takes place through the offering of blood. Church family, water or soap will not do it. All the purpose cleaner in the world, or all purpose cleaner in the world, does nothing ultimately. In fact, it's not, I can't believe I'm about to quote Shakespeare. Um, you get sandlot mold running toilets in Shakespeare here. Welcome to Greg Abel's. Um, but Lady Macbeth, right? She, she wakes up in the middle of the night and she's attempting to wash her hands because of the murder that she was a conspirator in. But she cannot do it. No matter how much she washes, she cannot rid herself of the blood of her hands. The guilt will not be removed without blood. Israel would have learned that in the purification offering. You're you're waiting for Jesus here, aren't you? Me too. All right, number three. 
Israel would have learned a continuous threat of sin and impurity. This is important. Israel would have learned a continuous threat of sin and impurity. A purification offering was necessary each time someone sinned. Again, whether intentionally or unintentionally, they had to take an animal and sacrifice it in order to purify the temple. Listen, this is a gracious provision that allows the Lord to continue to dwell in the midst of his people. But it's still the law. And what I mean by that is, is the purification offering did nothing to affect an internal change. Right? It, it cleansed the temple so the Lord might continue to dwell with them. But the worshiper still walked away dirty. He was forgiven, yes. Atoned for, yes. But the heart went away unchanged. And so it, by its very nature, revealed the need for a more permanent purification. The continual need for those bloody sacrifices were, as the writer of Hebrews says at the beginning of chapter 1, a constant reminder that the law and sacrificial system specifically can never, with these same sacrifices, which they continually offer year by year, make those who approach perfect. See, the Israelites were being taught to long for an internal, permanent solution to their sin problem. Not just the tent needed cleansing. Their hearts were in desperate need of purification as well. Number four, lesson number four. For Israel, by the way. Israel would have learned this purification offering underscores the Lord's purity and mercy. Israel would have learned... That this purification offering underscores the Lord's purity and mercy. His purity would not, could not allow impurity to exist again in the midst of his camp. It's, it's like oil and water. It could not coexist together. Either the sin must be cleansed or the Lord must go. One of those ting, two things were to happen. The Lord's holiness and purity was made inescapably clear to the Israelites. But also, his mercy was made clear. For his mercy required that he made a way to deal with the defilement of his people. And the purification offering was that way. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, each one of these applies directly to us as well. The lessons that Israel learned, we are to learn. We are to understand that sin is detestable. It is loathsome. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's not a lesson that our lives bear out that we've learned very well, is it? But we're to learn that lesson. We are to know that death is necessary. It's still the only thing that can cleanse away the consequences of sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's a good Baptist answer right there. We are to learn that God is holy and pure, that the mercy of God is even more evident through the provision of the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is still pure, and we still even more clearly now see his mercy. Now, if you were paying attention, you noticed that I skipped number three. You remember what number three is? Number three was the continued threat of sin and impurity. Have you thought about how that might apply to us here and now? Is there application? I mean, how do we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ apply this lesson directly or even indirectly to our lives? I mean, certainly this lesson applies to the church today. 
We must be very clear on that. But, but we also are very careful on how we apply it. For Israel, the lesson was that sin and impurity is a threat to the special presence of God. This purification offering taught the Israelites that the dwelling of God must be kept pure. But it also taught them that the blood of bulls and goats did nothing to fix the root of the problem, which is the impurity of their own hearts. Again, as the writer of Hebrews notes, in verse 11 of chapter 10, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So you had the forgiveness that never actually took away sins. The blood cleansed the palace tent. But ultimately, the hearts of the Israelites remained unchanged. With the coming of Christ, this changes forever. But listen, I need you to hear this. This is hard for us to understand. Listen, the blood of Jesus still cleanses the temple of God. In the Old Testament, the picture was the people would come, kill the animal, and the blood would cleanse the temple, the dwelling place of God. The New Testament picture is the blood of Jesus cleanses the temple But now the temple has become the worshiper. That's the picture. The New Testament picture is that the blood of Jesus, it still cleanses the temple. But now the temple has become the worshiper. You and I, Christian, are the temple. Blood is no longer sprinkled on the veil or smeared on the horns of the altar. It's now sprinkled on our hearts. As Hebrews chapter 9 verses 12 through 14 states, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, get verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Or in chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. See, the source of sin has now been cleansed. This is an internal cleansing, no longer an external cleansing. The blood of Christ has taken the sewer pipe known as our hearts and turned it into a stream of living water. In ancient Israel, the temple was was cleansed, not the worshiper. With the coming of Christ, it's still the temple that is purified, but the temple is now the worshiper. And yet, I need you to hear this, there's still a tension here. What I mean by that is that the blood of Christ has cleansed the temple of God, Christians. Yet even in the New Testament, we find that sin and impurity still threaten that relationship. What do I mean by that? Let's go over it one more time. The blood of Christ has, in fact, cleansed the temple of God. Yet even in the New Testament, we find that sin and impurity still threaten that relationship. That once for all sacrifice. Yes, it's cleansed the believer. God's spirit now dwells within us. And yet, the threat of sin and impurity is still very real in our lives. Our persistent disobedience diminishes our experience of God's gracious provision and presence. Listen. Even though we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we can still live in a way that grieves the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4. We are still exhorted to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we can be emptied. I just want want to let that sit. Emptied. 
we are exhorted to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we can get out of step with the Holy Spirit. Listen, sin is no less loathsome now that our hearts have been cleansed. This does not mean that we have a free pass to live however we want. Our sin is still an offense to a holy and just God. And so, Christians, let us draw near to the throne of grace and pray for help to guard our hearts against the defilement of sin. Now, here's where the tension is, right? This is what we're saying. There's there's this odd dichotomy throughout the scriptures that is just evidently clear. It is that we have been saved and sealed by the Spirit of God, right? If we are truly saved in Him, we cannot in any way lose our salvation because it's not ours to lose. It's the Lord's. Yes. And yet, there are constant warnings throughout the New Testament that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit lest we fall away. So, So certainly, certainly we would agree we cannot lose our salvation. And yet, I think... We, we can at times get to such a degree where we rest on that so much that we fail to actually take the warning seriously. That we actually fail to hear that God has decided to warn us, do not fall away. Do not grieve the Spirit. Understand your sin is still loathsome. We can be so assured in our salvation that we believe it gives us a free pass to live however we want. Friends, that's not the case. It's not it. In fact, the greatest evidence that we have salvation is a desire to live a holy life before God. Not a perfect life, but a desire to live a holy life. And so there's this thing that happens. Uh, Yes, we, we understand that those who belong to Christ belong to Him solely and finally because of His finished work on the cross. That's it. The once for all sacrifice has cleansed us. Positionally, we stand justified before God. Not because anything we do, but because of the finished work of Christ. Yet those exhortations are meant to be heard. Let us not stop up our ears because we know that we've been redeemed and rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ once for all. And fail to hear the warning. We need to be aware if we walk in sin... We will experience a diminishing of grace, the grieving of the Holy Spirit, and those consequences are real. I want us to hear and encourage us to hear the words of Revelation that even our lampstand can be removed. And and listen, I'm not saying this because I think we're at risk. I'm saying this because these are the exhortations of God's holy word. I want us to hear them and recognize the answer is our constant dependence on the Lord for His grace and mercy. That we might not grieve the Holy Spirit. Here's the beautiful thing. It, it, you may hear that, so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So what you're telling me is I'm saved and secure, and yet there's a real warning against grieving the Holy Spirit and taking my sins seriously. But, but, but you said I'm saved and secure. Yes, that's just my answer to you is yes. But, but the beautiful thing is that God has given us the means of His grace to see that evidence and to constantly drink deep at the well of His assurance. So let me ask you, because this is always the case. People will come to me in my office and they'll say, I'm really beginning to doubt my relationship with the Lord. And I just go straight to the means of grace. And I don't go to the means of grace as in a way to to create a checklist of of things they're doing and not doing. I go to the means of grace because I want to see where the desire is. So so I don't say, well, have you read your Bible this week? I I, I use language like, well, you 
do you desire to hear from the Lord through his word? Is, is there a desire that's placed in you to, to not just check a list in your Bible reading, but to understand that the God of the universe who spoke the cosmos into existence has spoken directly to you through the power of his word? And do you, do you stand in all of that as you read your scriptures? Is there a desire to hear from this king who loved you, who gave his son to die for you? And then I say, okay, not how many times have you prayed this week? But what's your desire to speak to the king like? Understanding that very same God who spoke things into existence actually desires for you to come to him with every one of your burdens, with your dependence upon him, to acknowledge in adoration who he is and to confess your sins. How often are you taking advantage of that means of grace? Where's your desire in your prayer life? Okay, third, your church. Right, so look, it's not, we throw out those things like they're empty. Well, have you read your Bible? You go to, you go to church, do you pray? No, have you heard from the God of the universe through his word? Have you spoken to the God of the universe through prayer? And have you received the gift of the family of God through the church? So let me ask you, we talked about this last week, heat-seeking missiles of care. What is, what is your, what's the last time you had a, a conversation with a fellow brother and sister in Christ, even this room, about your spiritual state? About where you are in your walk? About your desire to grow in holiness? Friends, if not, that's, that's not a means of shame. It's a means of opportunity. <laughs> because this is what we're here for. We come together as the family of God. We sing it every single week. That means that we are a community of believers by which God uses us and others in our lives to grow us closer to Him. And so, let me ask you. First, are you part of a local church? And if you are, have you been knit together in such a way that you actually desire to be together and not just to sit and consume, but you desire to fellowship with one another in such a way where you lean upon each other. You're holding each other accountable. These are the means of grace we need to understand. Because when that, when that fear and temptation comes, that we're tempted to think that sin is not detestable, that we're tempted to forget that sin requires a death payment, that we're tempted to forget that that death payment has been given to us in Christ and we are still to continuously fight against the warning of sin that wants to consume and destroy us, those means of grace, they're ever, ever pivotal in that fight. And I'm afraid that too often we simply neglect them and then we throw it under the realm of legalists. Well, I didn't read my Bible, but I don't want to be a legalist. Friends, that's not your struggle. (laughs) Your struggle is not to think that these things save you. Your struggle is an actual desire And that should terrify you. If there's no desire for God's word, if there's no desire to pray to him, if there's no real desire except for out of duty, and I'm on the nursery rotation this week, to be with God's people, friends, then you're lacking the evidence to really feel like you have a relationship with Christ. And you need to understand that. The warnings are real. If your relationship with Jesus becomes more about what you did at some point in your life than what you're desiring now, then you've missed the point. Where is your desire level? Because these exhortations are real. Yes, the Lord has sealed us with His grace. 
But there are real tangible evidences he's given us in his word to see that we do belong to him. And if you're not constantly examining yourself, that's the charge and that's the warning. And yet we rest. We rest in the purification offering. That's the message I want you to hear. It's because the very presence of God has come now to us through his spirit if we're really in Christ. He has cleansed us in such a way. And and so again, just picture you're an Old Testament priest and you've done all of these things to defile or to to cleanse the, uh, the dwelling place of God from defilement. And then you understand that God has come to live with you. What does your work and attitude look like to cleansing your temple? We know it's been cleansed by the finished work of God, yes. But the sin continuously remains a threat. Do you desire to have it eradicated? Are you fighting to? The very means of hope is that the Spirit of God, when He does live with you, He does dwell with you, it is yet not I, but Christ in me, who gives you that desire to continuously fight. But He does so through the means of grace. Let us not neglect them, friends. Let us rest in them as we rest in the finished work of our Savior. Let's stand together as we close. Gracious Father, there is great tension as we recognize in your word. There are assurances and promises that confirm in our hearts that Jesus has indeed paid it all. That at the cross he took upon himself every penalty and consequence for every sin that we as believers have ever sinned and committed. He has removed the debt. We know there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand before your throne of grace. We even enter into the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat. We receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. Yet, Lord, your word warns us that if we presume upon that grace, if we think that our sin does not matter and we live in such a manner that grieves your Holy Spirit that we will experience the consequences of such choices. So Lord, I pray for your, your grace for each of us, that we might be united, that we might continue to exhort one another, stand together, walk together in a way that honors and glorifies your Son. Father, you know our frailty. Father, you know our propensity to sin, to neglect your means of grace. To go our own way. So we return once again to receive from you the only thing which sustains us, the only thing that allows us to persevere your grace. Father, be gracious towards your people, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we come now to the time of response and reflection, My encouragement uh, for those of you who know Christ is, is pretty simple. I, just, I want to encourage you to check your desire. And I, I don't mean that as, um, because we can, we can be tricked easily. But overall, like you know there are days you desire the Lord more than others, certainly. But even those days that you desire Him, you, you praise Him for, right? Because they are reminders that He has done a good work in your heart. But the reality is, if... if if you struggle with any desire whatsoever to read his word, to pray, to belong to the family of God, 
being uh, knit together in such a way in unity and peace. And friend, you need to really ask yourself the bigger question here, whether or not you really have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, whether or not you really do have the presence of God dwelling within you, whether it is an issue of your temple just being dirty and need to be repented of, or whether or not the Lord has ever cleansed the temple. And if that's the case, if you struggle with that, we're, we're here to help you. Don't rush out of here um, without getting that dealt with. We have people down front who will be down front who would love to talk with you about what it means to be a Christian, just to hold you accountable and encourage you in many ways. We're not here to shame you or make you feel bad. We're here to, because we love you and we want you to have a relationship with Christ. And so maybe you're a Christian this morning and listen, you, you have leaned for so long on once saved, always saved, that sin has just crept in the door and you're, you fail to see it as really detestable. And you're basing your salvation on, on something you've done rather than where your, your heart is right now and who, who you're trusting in. And if that's the case, then please let us walk through that with you. We want to find out where you're at and how we can pray and encourage you. Maybe you're here this morning and you just flatten no, you don't belong to Christ by faith. The good news of the gospel is understand this. We, we've seen already your sin is detestable. We've seen already that God is holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin. The good news of the gospel is that this, this God who is holy in such a way sent a greater purification offering and his name was Jesus Christ. He lived the life that you should have lived but could not because of your sin lived. And then he died a death that you deserve to die. He received upon himself the penalty for your sin and, and is given to all those who repent and believe a righteousness that he alone could earn. So that by turning away from your sins and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you today can have that relationship. And when you truly do, you are sealed by his spirit forever. If you don't know where you stand this morning, if you have any questions, if you want to receive Christ, if you just want a prayer, we want to, we want to reserve this space down here for the opportunity to do that. But overall, I pray that you would hear the warning and hear it well. Friends, I want to live a life that, that makes it look like I truly believe sin is detestable. And that I truly believe that it is constantly a threat wanting to destroy me. So I pray that we as a church would do that. Um, I love each and every one of you. Thank you for, for continuing upon this journey with me. I know we've got a long way to go. Um, but we are coming upon a break soon. So next week we'll be in Leviticus 5, the first half of Leviticus 5, and then you'll get a break, and you'll even get to hear from Pastor Justin that day.